And what a way to start our day together. All praise, all hail King Jesus. Uh, anybody else enjoying that new song that we've been singing? Is it? You can cheer. This is the one where you cheer. Yeah. Um, my name is Gage Henry, and I'm so grateful to be here. I'm the college and community pastor here. And I need you to know this about me, that I did graduate from the University of Georgia. But, 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 Miles said if I talk about it at all, then I'll be fired. So is it okay if we just move on from that fact? Yes, amen. All right. Okay, well, let's keep going in into today. Uh, we've been in this, this series. We, start, we literally launched into it, Daniel, Children of Revival. And it starts with this, this uh, statement we're going to put on the screen right here. It says this, we will either be conformed to the world around us or be transformed by the word within us. Straight out of Galatians 4, Christ formed in you. So if you didn't watch last week, you have to go back and watch what happened. I mean, it's unbelievable to think about the fact that Hilkiah the priest literally finds the book of the law. King Josiah goes on a rampage, tears down idols, renews the covenant for God's people. And now, 25 years later, Daniel, we're about to open up the book of Daniel, Daniel steps into this cultural moment, and somehow his parents have formed in him something like resolve, something like ferocity to stay true to the word of God. And what happened? So the question we've been asking in this series, or we're going to ask in this series, is what happened? How can you be formed in such a way to be ready for that moment? Because the true effects of that moment are felt in the generation that follows. And in my life, I've discovered so far that my true commitment or conviction to something, it's not really decided on. It's more revealed. And what I mean by that is I was sitting at a wedding last night, for example, and I resolved for my 21 days of prayer to, um, to not eat sweets. That's great, right? It's a great decision until the cake comes out, right? I'm like, am I really going to stay true to this resolve, this commitment I had? And you guys all know this is true. I work with college students. You always know it's true. Like, you have a childlike faith going into college, and then what happens? It doesn't feel childlike in your reality that you see, so you leave it behind because your reality is colliding with this commitment that you made. And you know what I've also learned in my life is that it comes to trials. Like, all of us in this room, I can't even speak to every single situation that's going on right now, but I've learned that in the hardest trials... It's not that my commitment changed. It's just that the door to compromise opened. It's just this moment where all of a sudden now the trial that you're in, there's a compromise available to you. Or you're going to stand true to the conviction and the commitment that you made ahead of time. And so for me, I know in my life, I've, I've learned so far that the fight for my family and the fight for the future that I want for this church is in the compromise. And so I've, I've talked a lot about the reason why I moved to Auburn and what God is doing here is special, but I've never actually told you guys the moment that I knew I was meant to be in Auburn. And so I was hired as the college and community pastor. So what do I do in the first few weeks? I find a college and community group to go to, and I come to this church. They're meeting in the room down there, lower lobby. It's a co-ed group, so there's about 25 or so students. I find myself sitting there, and then I look around the, the circle, and there's a middle-aged guy sitting there. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's not in college, and he definitely doesn't look like he belongs in this in this group, and he's not the leader, and I quickly realize he starts being more and more confrontational to everything the leader's saying. This is a true story. Starts being like literally mad. You say Jesus, the leader would say Jesus, he'd be like, mm. starts confronting back and forth everything that he's saying. And just so you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? And I'm kind of freaking out a little bit. And just something you need to know about me, when I get really nervous or I'm thinking, I play with my ear. <laughs> it's like my tick. So I'm like playing with my ear over there. I'm just like focused. Like, what do I do? I'm thinking to myself, like, he starts talking. He gets to the point where it climaxes, and he literally says this. He says, 
I actually follow the sun god, and I'm here to claim my followers. True story. He says this in a, in a community group. And I'm like, am I about to have my first fist fight for Jesus, like, in my life? <laughs> so I'm seeing this whole thing play out, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, like, focused. And I look at the guy, and he's, he's literally talking. He has a college girl on his left, a college girl on his right, and they're both shaking out of fear of this guy. And so right as I'm about to do something, I look up, and he, no joke, turns and looks at me and says, are you playing with your ear because you're nervous? I'm like, yep, this is my first fist fight for Jesus, right? So I literally stand up, and I'm trying to channel my inner Morgan Freeman voice, and I was like, you need to leave right now, you know, that kind of thing. And I walk over to him, true story, walk over to him. You can ask them on the front rows, their group. I walk up to him, and literally he's sitting there, and he stands up, and he, he keeps standing up. He's taller than me. So he's like now looking down on me, and he goes, we don't have a problem. And so I'm like, well, he doesn't move. So then I'm like, all right. So I put my hand on his shoulder, and I kind of turn him to like force him towards the door. So we start walking towards the door. And as we get to the door, halfway there, I kind of chicken out because I'm like, oh, my goodness, he fights me at the door. So then I kind of turn behind myself like this to see if anybody else is there, like behind me, has my back. And everybody in the group says that he's walking next to me. He turns, looks at me, opens his mouth like he's about to bite me, and then he kisses me on the neck. <laughs> How uncomfortable you guys feel is just a little bit of a taste to what I was feeling. True story. So I kind of shove him off. I'm in shock. I kind of shove him out the door. As soon as he gets out the door, he starts howling to the moon, to the, I guess the sun god, starts howling to the moon, literally takes off both shoes, launches them across the parking lot, takes off sprinting across to airport motors across the street. So the cops come, everybody comes, the cop is literally asking me, he, He's like, what happened? He's like, did he assault you? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, <laughs> did he assault you? And I'm like, well, no. He's like, well, tell me what happened, sir. And I'm like, well, he kissed me on the neck. <laughs> Do you want to press charges? It's like, no, let's just keep this between us, right? Like, <laughs> let's not tell anybody about this. This happened. And so obviously, I know I don't want to belittle mental health at all. There's always the factual story, who, what, when, where. The details, there's also the actual story, the why. See, here's what I learned that, that night. An elder actually came and prayed over me. There's an enemy that didn't want me here. That was the moment I realized I'm meant to be here. If the enemy is getting that obvious, like that's the most obvious thing I've ever seen and ever experienced in my life, that he's like, I don't want you here in Auburn. That means, guess what? God is moving here. There's something happening here. It's not about me, but there's something powerful that's happening in the midst of this. And I just want to tell some of you, but you're experiencing opposition today. You're feeling the trial. You're feeling the circumstance. That's not proof that God has left you or that you're losing. It's proof that actually Jesus is being formed in you. Because what happens is, is man, when you start getting pure, that's when all of a sudden the text from the ex comes or the ad on your phone. Or you start actually being generous with your stuff and then the unexpected bill comes. Or all of a sudden now you're living in the true identity of who God's called you to be and that's when the comment is made about your appearance. It's when you face the opposition. What you know is so amazing is it says this about Jesus. He says, take heart, for I've overcome the world. He also says, I mean, 1 John 4, you can read it. It talks about greater is he that is in me than is in the world. But also at the same time, if you're not facing any opposition today, I just got to challenge you. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Maybe there's nothing to steal from you. Just challenge you. Opposition is proof. Not that you've been left, but it leaves the door open to what? Compromise. 
And so I actually want to put this word on the screen. Compromise, so we all know what we're talking about. And I just want you to realize the story we're about to read about Daniel. It's his movement. It's not that God's people stop being God's people. It's that they compromise themselves away into exile. And so this word compromise, what does it mean? It means an agreement, right? You know what a compromise means. I want you to think about it this way. Every time that you compromise, it is an agreement with the enemy to conform you to the pattern of this world. Every time you compromise, it's like an agreement with the enemy to say, you can deform me. But I want you to notice, there's a word within the word. You ever see that? Compound word? Oh, that's not a compound word. But you see there's a word within the word. You can underline it right now. See that? Promise. You know God is a God of promises, and he keeps his promise. So every time that you have resolve in your life, every time you stand firm in your conviction, it's like an agreement with the Holy Spirit to transform you into who you were meant to be. So I want you to think about it this way. A compromise is deformation, away from who God wants you to be. A resolve, deeper formation into who God wants you to be. So I was uh, reading this week from some different stories and illustrations and everything, and I found this story of a 400-year-old redwood tree, a sequoia, that fell. There was no weather. Everybody was like, what happened? How did this 400-year-old tree fall? Because it was supposed to live to about 3,000 years. And it fell, and they were trying to figure out what had happened. Come to find out, a horde of beetles, little tiny beetles, had begun taking root in the bark. They began to eat away at the, the, literally the inside of the tree. So you look on the outside, it looks perfect, it looks awesome, it looks majestic, but it fell. Every time you compromise, I want you to think about the fact it's like a little tiny beetle eating away at your soul, who God has called you to be. So I have a vision for us today. What if? Like literally, what if? The way that we prayed actually shook heaven. What if the way that we actually worship shook the gates of hell? What if we actually began to take ground? Because what you're going to see is you're going to see the life of Daniel. Who is Daniel? Daniel is a man of identity. He's a man of confidence. He has unwavering commitment to God in the midst of all kinds of suffering, all kinds of trials, and Babylonian exile. He literally says, we didn't say this, but I think in my head, this is what it sounds like. I want all the smoke, okay? You ever heard that phrase? Things I think cool people are saying it these days, but it's I want all the smoke, meaning like literally, I don't care what comes at me, I'm going to stay true to the one true God. And then he's thrown into a fire for it. And then he goes into a lion's den, and so many other amazing things happen. So the title of this sermon, if you need one, it's really Daniel, Children of Revival, but the title is The Fight. The Fight. Tell your neighbor, let's go to war. Time to go to war. Let's do it. It's good. So some context, just so you know. Jeremiah is uh, the son of Hilkiah, the guy who finds the book of the law. And Jeremiah, you might have read in Jeremiah 29. You might know the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Well, you need to see Jeremiah 29, 10 first. So I'm going to put it on the screen. It says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So I want you to notice something. It says 70 years. 70 years is symbolic of a lifetime. It means, hey, we're going into exile, and everybody who goes in that's alive will die in exile. And that's, after that is the verse that we always quote and for blessing and stuff, where it's like, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to not harm you and prosper you. Yeah, you're in exile the whole time. That's what the verse is really the context of. The point is this. I'm coming back to fulfill my good promise, but not to get you, 
coming for the next generation. I'm coming for the future children. I'm coming for the future people, my people. And that's the context we're going to read the scriptures today. So if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. We'll do a single people Bible drill for tonight because relationships die over winter break for some reason and passion and other things that happen. So actually, I want to do this. Since we're going to stand true on our convictions and we have a lot of verses to read today, um, if you wouldn't mind, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of the word. Yeah, we're switching it up. We're fighting today, standing on two feet. If you can't do that, no worries. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. It's right after the book of Ezekiel, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We got a lot of reading to do. Is everybody okay if we study the Bible for, for a little bit? All right, come on, let's do it. Give you a few seconds to get there. You guys can catch up if you can't find it. Daniel chapter 1, the verses are going to be on the screen. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, if you're there, say I'm there. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should, he see you, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. You may have a seat. Anybody's legs feeling a little tired? 
It's a long verse. We're going to get back into it, all right? So stay with me here. Let's study the Word of God. I'm not going to actually read through all the different pieces, but let's just go back and check it out. Verse 1, what happens? Jerusalem is besieged. Verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar takes over, and he takes the gold and everything from the temple of God into his temples. Verse 3, the king orders these young men to be taken into his service. And verse 4 is low-key, the most hilarious verse in the entire Bible. I want you to look at it. Because who's writing Daniel? Daniel, about himself. And he's like, the young men without physical defect. Handsome. Showing aptitude for everything. I just think it's hilarious. It's proof that he was a teenager, right? Like, <laughs> seriously, shout out to ACC Youth. Wake on Wednesday. Woo! It's amazing. Three of them were there. It was sick. Um, just kidding, the three in the front row. But what does he say after that? He says, teach them. Train them, feed them for three years in his service. So what's happening here? So I think it's easy for us to look at this and think, oh, this is like them making them brilliant. No, this is them brainwashing them. Think about this. How do you brainwash somebody? It's the same thing people do today as world. It's super sad. You isolate them, take them from their families. Identity, you give them a new name. And you indoctrinate them. Here's the way we live. Here's the literature. Here's the language. Here's everything you need to know about how to be what? Successful in our society. Sound familiar at all to anything we do? You know, kids leave their family, they come here, they maybe get a nickname, and then they learn new creeds. Weagle, weagle. <laughs> I can't finish the sentence on stage, I don't think. War, yeah, I don't know, I don't want to finish it. I'm not trying to say that we're enslaved at all. I'm just saying that we do the same thing. This is what people do. You want to make sure they can be successful in your society. And there's some eerie, I would say, cultural correlations to Babylon and today. And so there's actually a book I'd recommend if you're a parent or you have any interest in Generation Z and the next generation. It's called Faith for Exiles. And the whole premise of the book is that since the introduction of the smartphone, we actually live in a digital Babylon where none of us have actually walked through the different ways of discipleship and we're now screens disciple. I just want to point out a few things that he mentions in the book about the Generation Z. And basically, anybody in college or younger. He says this statistic, which was pretty crazy to me, that over half of the next generation believed it is more morally intolerant to not recycle than it is to look at porn. More than half of the generation believes it's worse if I don't recycle than if I look at porn. Of the Christians that they interviewed, they did a bunch of research, Barna Group did, of the Christians that they interviewed, half believed it was not okay to call out the life choices of someone else Half believed it was wrong for you to say, no, you shouldn't be drinking. No, you shouldn't date him. Half believed it was not okay to call out their life choices at all. My parents, I was like 100%, right? This is kind of what he kind of gets at this point in the book, and you can get it and read it and all that, but he kind of gives us that this culture today wants to trap us in adolescence. And he says that the rise of helicopter parenting is actually, it's not that the world, these, this next generation is not prepared for the world, It's not that they're literally not prepared out of their fear. It's because of their parents' fear. And he gets on this whole entire soapbox about how the reason why our kids are entitled is because we made them an idol. So how do we be different? I mean, think about it. What is digital Babylon? What did the the smartphone promise us? It promised us to be more connected, yet we feel more isolated. It promised us to make sure we never miss out. Now we feel like we're always missing out. It promised us more freedom. Now what do we feel? Fear of missing out. Like I said, fear of not measuring up, fear of living a lesser life. This is the digital Babylon that we live in today, and we are known as what's called screen's disciple, and the pressure is mounting and people are cracking. Just ask anybody right now, the pandemic that's coming right now is more anxiety, mental health issues, because we're cracking under the pressure. 
So I think about it this way. I went scuba diving uh, in Destin, if you want to call it that. I mean, I, I wore the scuba gear in the water in Destin. And as I went down, I realized really quickly, I mean, if you've ever been scuba diving, literally like 10 feet down, you start to feel the pressure, right? Feel the pressure of the water. And you look to your right, I literally remember this little tiny fish goes straight down into the water. You know why? It's because the pressure inside that fish matches the pressure on the outside. The pressure on the inside matches the pressure on the outside. And right now, the pressures of our world are really coming down on us. But the pressure on the inside, the resolve that we have, has to be strong enough to withstand it. So let's look at the word of God again. What does it say? Verse 8. But Daniel. So Miles kind of talked about this in church at home. Before that, he says he got a new name, Belteshazzar. And then he says, but Daniel. He made sure to say his name. I want to take it a step further. Because what does the name Daniel mean? Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. So what's crazy is the fall of Babylon happens under King Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar. A lot of Jewish scholars believe that Daniel purposefully misspelled his own name there. Because Belteshazzar means Baal is not my king, whereas Belshazzar means Baal is my king. So in the scriptures... It's believed by Jewish scholars that he purposefully misspelled his name because he wouldn't even, in the retelling of the story, write out that Baal was his king because it wasn't true. His identity was formed by somebody else's authority. So point number one for you is this. Build your identity on God's authority. Build your identity on God's authority. God is my judge. Baal is not my judge. And the way that you know if you're doing that, the way that you know if your identity is being defined by God as if he actually has all authority over your life. What does it say next? But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So let's just talk about each word real quick. Resolve, it's like, we don't have a word for it, but it's like making up with your mind and setting it on your heart at the same time. It's like your heart deciding with its mind. Resolve to what? Not to defile himself. What is defilement? It's sin. It's impurity. So he chose to not sin by what? Food and wine. Okay, let's rewind. Why is it food? Why is this the the story that's being told? Think about it. What happened in the generation before? His parents did what? They discovered the book of the law. So they started teaching the book of the law. How does the book of the law start? Genesis. What is the story in Genesis about food? Adam and Eve. And what happens in the garden? Adam eats the food with Eve. He eats from what tree? Tree of knowledge. What happens in the story of Daniel? He resolved not to defile himself with the food. He chose not to eat the food. And then what happens? Verse 17. He gains knowledge. What's amazing is this is a a redemptive story of the first story of sin. This is an opportunity for Daniel. I said, whoa, look at this. I am not going to make the mistake that I saw before me. I'm not going to fall away. I'm not going to compromise. And so actually, I have the second point to this is that we should build your integrity on God's word. So if you build your identity on God's authority, you have to build your integrity on God's word because compromise always leads to consequence. Every time you compromise, I love how Andy Stanley, a pastor I follow, says it. He says, every sin comes with a prepackaged consequence. Every time you sin, it comes with a consequence. It's coming. So I actually know that Daniel probably knew the stories of the Bible up until his point. So I wanted you to make sure you knew the context in which he made this decision. So I'm going to put a chart up on the screen. We're going to go through it. You can read it. 
It says this, Adam, I think we have it, yeah. Adam did what? He sinned and he lost paradise. Sarah compromised God's word. She wanted control. She wanted a child and they lost peace in the Middle East. Still don't have peace there. Esau compromised for food with Jacob and lost his birthright. Aaron compromised with idolatry and he and the people lost the promised land. Samson compromised righteous devotion with Delilah and lost his strength, his eyes, and his life. David compromised by sleeping with Bathsheba, then murdering her husband, Uriah, and lost the child that she got pregnant with. And lastly, Israel compromised the law of God, and they lost their home, and they went into exile. And this is where Daniel stands up and starts talking about his resolve as he's taken into exile. Why? Because he knew his identity. He knew the integrity that was built on God's word, the story of God's people. It says this in the end of verse 8 and 9, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God, I love that. So far, God has been like not necessarily active in the story he's telling. It goes the whole story and then boom, after his resolve, then what? Favor. After this, now God gets involved to do what? Give him favor. And I love that because did you know that your faith has the capacity to break through someone else's fear? Because he's like, look, he'll have my head if you look any different. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about in my own life, any moments like this that happen, I naturally do this when I'm reading the scriptures, and I thought about the fact that when I started seminary, I like to tell people that I learned more about God in seminary, but I learned more about ministry at Southwest. See, because I worked at Southwest Airlines, I put bags on a plane, it's pretty awesome, not really in 100 degree heat, but I remember this, okay, so when I started working there, I want you to think about Elf. You know that scene where he's like, goes to the mail room? I'm talking about where he's like, it smells like mushrooms and everybody wants to hurt me. Like, you know what I mean? That's what I think about. Just, I want you to have that picture. Me working at Southwest Airlines. And they put a blue vest on you so everybody hates you because you're the beginner that can get them in trouble. All right? So in that time, I learned so much because nobody was a believer. And out of all my coworkers, about 30 or 40 guys, we'd always end up hanging out in the break room. Nobody was a believer. And my trainer, the guy who I'd always talk to, he constantly would ask me, like, who are you sleeping with? Like, you're going, where are you going to get drunk this weekend? He would ask me over and over and over again. There's so many moments. I remember thinking, like, it'd just be easier for me to just say I do it, like, just, just to get him to stop talking. And then finally, he was like, man, you really believe this stuff. You really believe this stuff about God. You really believe that he's real. You really believe that you're not supposed to do that. You really believe that you're not supposed to go out and drink. And Man, youth is wasted on the wrong people. Like, he would come at me all the time, to the point where I thought about quitting. So finally, he's getting after me. It gets kind of confrontational to the point where he's telling me, like, there's no way God's real because this is happening in my life. There's no way God's real. This has happened. This has happened. This has happened. This has happened. And to the point where I didn't even have a good answer. You ever feel like that? You feel like a failure every time you have a conversation with somebody? You're trying to prove that God is real, and every time they have a better argument for why he's not? And I was in seminary, and I'm struggling to, like, know what to say to this guy. So finally, I just say to him, I'm like, why don't you just ask God, okay? Just ask God if he's real. Like, I'm obviously not ever going to convince you. So the next day, he comes up to me. He says, all right, I'll listen. I'm like, what the heck happened the night before, right? Like, <laughs> I'm like, did God speak to you last night? Like, trying to figure out. He's like, no, God didn't speak to me last night. I was honestly frustrated. I was like, ha, gotcha, told you, Gage. And then the next morning, I get in my car. I plug in my phone. I listen to music on the way to work, and my phone music doesn't play. And so I'm like, you know, I'll listen to a CD. He says he hits the C CD, by the way, is this little circular de <laughs> device. Okay, all right, cool. Hits the CD button, and a voice starts talking. Talking about the existence of God. Speaking directly into the conversation that we had had the day before. And it's not some spoopy, crazy thing that happened. It, what happened is, is that his mother-in-law had borrowed his car without him knowing it. And she had listened to a Charles Stanley sermon that she had put in the car. 
So when he hit the CD button, Charles Stanley starts preaching at him as to why God is real. So he says, all right, I'm ready to listen to your conversation. I'm ready to at least hear what you have to say about this God that you keep following, you won't compromise for. See, this is what happens. I feel like a failure all the time when I stand up here. I feel like I don't have the right words to say. I can't say it the right way. What's amazing is God's favor is so much greater than my failure. And when you give God the opportunity to speak, guess what? You get to witness him being God and you not. It's so much better that way. So this is what I would say in regards to that. Commitment to the Holy Spirit's formation in you is what leads to God's transformation of the world around you. Commitment to the Holy Spirit forming you is what leads to the world's transformation around you. So when I was a freshman in college, I had a guy who gave me a book called Don't Waste Your Life. I know it's great. John Piper, anybody ever read that book? Okay, yeah, Don't, don't Waste Your Life. And he tells me um, that whole conversation we have. He said, and I want you to go back and listen to this sermon he gave in 2000 at One Day Conference. And in that sermon, John Piper makes this analogy. You maybe have heard it before where he says, success story. And it's a story about this couple that retired in their 50s and moved to the beach, and they were going to spend the rest of their life collecting shells. And then it says, tragedy. He reads another article. Tragedy. Two sisters in their 80s who never married die at the hands of cannibals sharing the gospel. Tragedy. And he looks at us, and I remember it looked at me through the screen and said, which one is the tragedy? Which one is it? That you get to heaven one day, you walk up to Jesus, and you say, look at all my shells. Or the two ladies that walk up and say, I gave everything for you. I didn't compromise. I gave it all. I laid it all down on the line for you. And look, obviously, most of us, it's not shells, but most of us are thinking right now, hey, look, look at the amount of financial wealth. I left my family when I died. Look at how high I got in my career. Look how much I accomplished. Look, I got a blue check by my name on Instagram. Check how many followers I had. I did this all in your name, Jesus. We chase our own little version of that. But I would say that was the moment where I was like, you know what? I want my life. I don't want to miss out on the very reason why I have breath in my lungs. I don't want the same for you either. So it kind of finishes this way. Daniel knew the story, right? But he also knew the stories of resolve. So I'm going to put this chart up. So he knew that Noah resolved to build a boat in a drought, and his family lived. And now you get to see a rainbow of the new covenant. Abraham resolved to offer his only son to God, and God showed favor to him to be the father of all nations. Sarah resolved to trust God's promise of a child, and now she's a mother. Moses resolved to lead God's people from Egypt, and God showed favor by splitting the sea. Joshua resolved to walk around some walls as his battle strategy, and God broke down those walls by showing favor as they tore down the walls into the promised land. David resolved to repent of his sin. God showed favor to him by calling him the man after his own heart, and he's the king in line to the king of all kings, Jesus. And Josiah resolved to renew the covenant to God. God showed favor to Daniel. And he would not forget about his children of revival in the exile. See, the chapter ends in, in chapter 1 with what? King Cyrus, it says. That means that Daniel made it through all the 70 years of rulers. That means he made it to the end. And you know the craziest part for me in all of it is that Daniel never really had kids. Never really. He never had kids. And this isn't said directly in the Bible but there's a lot of evidence that points to the fact he would have said who he's married to. 
he would have said if he had kids, and most of the people who were taken into the king's service were castrated. What, is that? what am I trying to say? I'm saying that the resolve of Daniel had nothing to do with his line, with his generation. It had everything to do with God's nation, his people, what he was doing, the glory of God. See, what's amazing is I truly believe that Daniel got an opportunity to lead the people to be faithful in exile because he saw not just a result that he wanted, he saw the resurrection. So I'm gonna put this on the screen, and this is where we're gonna close. See, I know you said this is Old Testament. Jesus hadn't arrived yet, but Daniel got a vision. And one vision of Jesus is enough to be the breakthrough. I just want to tell you, if you're facing opposition today, resistance is always strongest right before the breakthrough. So let's look at this vision together. It says this, in my vision at night I looked, Daniel chapter 7, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, the Son of Man, that phrase, Son of Man, is used 80 times in the Gospels to describe Jesus. He sees Jesus coming on the clouds who has all the authority, who has all the dominion, who has all the glory. And one vision of Jesus is what I'm telling you right now will transform your family. And I think about compromise. How do you not compromise? By get a clear vision of Jesus. What does that mean? Renew it every single day. What does it say in Romans? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve God's will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we said last week that if we're going to be the children of revival, if we're going to launch these, uh, next, the next generation to maybe usher back Jesus, we have to be about two things, reformation and revival. Reformation is a return to the scriptures, and revival is a return to the Holy Spirit. So I want to, I want to close with this. There was a man who got a vision of Jesus. Such a vision of Jesus that he wouldn't stop talking about him. Some of you have been this man before. And this man had some neighbors moving next door. He's telling everybody. It's a new neighborhood. Telling everybody about Jesus. This man has a family. He has three kids. Continually talking. Hey, I got, I got to invite you to church. It's crazy. Jesus has transformed my life. And he's so fresh. He's brand new to his faith. But he's just telling everybody about this vision that he got of Jesus. And the man that he's talking to is kind of receptive, but eventually gets to the point of saying, hey, there is a revival happening in Tiger Stadium in Louisiana. And he's like, well, my son has never seen Tiger Stadium, so I want to take him. And this man goes with his son to Tiger Stadium to hear Billy Graham preach. And Billy Graham preaches the gospel. And he does two things, by the way. He always says, the Bible says, because he wants to make sure all authority that he's speaking with is God's authority from his word. And he always, it's what? A revival. He wants the Holy Spirit to go out. So Billy Graham preaches the gospel and says, anybody who wants to receive Christ, come down right now. And the man watches as his son, his nine-year-old son, begins to walk down the aisle towards the front. And the man, overcome with emotion, follows his son down to the front. 
they get to the, the altar and they pray to receive Christ. That man was my grandfather. That son was my father. So I can't look over there. My dad's actually sitting over there right now. Otherwise, I'll start crying. But if we're going to talk about the children of revival, my revival didn't start with me. It started the night of 1970 when Billy Graham preached the gospel. My father said yes. And as you think about the next generation, I just want you to know, you can get a clear vision of Jesus. He's worth it. I told this story at Sons, and I've told it to some other people, but there's a new layer to it. Because I wanted to make sure that I never forgot where I came from. I actually got this picture. I scoured the internet, and I found this picture. And it's actually the night that my dad gave his life to Jesus. It's a picture of Billy Graham in Tiger Stadium in 1970. And yesterday, I got the opportunity to hand my dad this photo with a note. It said, my revival started this night. 50-something years ago. If you want to make sure that your children don't forget the story that they're in about Jesus, you have to give them a clear vision of Jesus. You can't forget your history. You got to know it. Some of you right now, you come from broken families, from alcoholics. Some of you in this room, you come from a history of mental health. You come from a history of struggle. You come from a history of strife. Some of you are in the trial right now. For me to talk about the children of revival today is almost laughable because of the situation that my wife and I are going through right now. But some of you need to know that a vision of Jesus is worth it. A vision of Jesus is more. And the revival can start today. So some of you right now, you're not gonna show a picture of when your dad gave his life to Jesus or when your mom gave their life to Jesus. It's gonna be a passion. It's going to be a few years ago at the Coliseum. It might even be today. So let me pray for you. We're going to sing about this breakthrough. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you're so good in our most broken moments. So Father, I thank you for the opportunity to stand up here as a broken man. God, your power is made strong in our weakness. So, Father, I pray for the soul right now who's on the fence. I pray for the person right now who's facing a compromise, that they would not give in. Father, I pray that you would make us people of resolve to not defile ourselves, to not eat the food, to not say yes to the enemy, to not agree with him to destroy our lives. But, Father, I pray that we would step forward in faith to know that you are the one who can shake mountains. You are the one who can actually build a fire within our soul that burns brighter than the fire around us. You are the one who wants to actually redeem the broken parts of us. So Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come and you would fill this room with a praise of his people. God, I know that you are so good and I know that you can do this. So I don't want this to be in my strength, but God, I want it to be in yours. So, Father, come and meet people in specific ways in the next few minutes. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.